with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And read along with me as I read beginning with verse 11. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become so dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles and oracles of God, and have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. When I was a boy, one of my favorite stories was the elaborate fairy tale that we all know as Peter Pan. Peter was a boy who lived on a magical island. You'll remember, it's called Neverland. And he lived there with a pixie friend of his named Tinkerbell. Neverland, so the story goes, is a place where dreams come true, where you can do anything you want. When you're there, you can sleep in the trees, you can befriend fierce Indians, you can fight with evil pirates, you can eat whatever you want, you can go to bed whenever you want, you can play any game you desire without any kind of risk of negative consequences. Best of all, you can fly. You can fly above the clouds just because you want to, and all you need is a little pixie dust and a little happy thought. Peter was a playful and whimsical and endearingly irresponsible little boy whose life was governed by only one single resolution. I will never grow up. As children, we all dream of what it would be like to escape to never land and never grow up. As adults, there may still be occasions when we long for the freedom from responsibility we enjoy in childhood, but deep inside, we all understand that there's something seriously wrong with a person whose years mark him as an adult, but whose behavior is that of a child. This was the concern that drove the author of Hebrews to write the document laying before us that we've been studying for a number of months now. The Jewish people he addressed had made a profession of faith many years earlier. They had been members of this church for years. They had served in ministry together. Sometimes they engaged in ministry that even led them to hostile circumstances. They suffered together. They had served in ministry. And yet something now was wrong. Some of the members of this church were so immature that the author had reason to question whether or not they even belonged to Christ. We need to know that going in. And we need to understand that the author's whole concern here is that these people in the church may be lost. And I want to give you an idea of why that is. And these people were unlike us in the sense that they were Jewish. And they weren't just Jewish in the Jewish-American sense But they were what we would consider today orthodox Jews. They were Jews who were deeply 
in the whole culture of Judaism. As I've shared with you before, I believe that this book was written before 70 AD. The temple was still standing. The sacrifices were still going. All of the incense, the priesthood, the... uh, um, uh, the Shekinah glory, everything that had been in the past was either there or had be, was being reflected there. And so it was all in place. The priesthood was still going. They were very intimately connected. They knew all of the feasts. They knew all of the sacrifices. Some of them may have even been priests. And yet, somewhere along the way, someone came and presented the gospel of Jesus Christ the risen Christ. And they had given verbal assent. They said, we believe. The evidence is compelling. A Jewish person who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you might call a mature Jew. And one who has not come to Christ, you might call an immature Jew in the sense that All of the sacrifices and the symbols and the shadows were pointing forward and should have led them incrementally, step by step by step, to a place where they were prepared to receive what Christ had to offer when he came. They either accepted that and became mature Jews, or they rejected it and remained immature. That's important. Because when we get into this text, and he's talking about maturity... Do not miss the fact that what he is saying here is you may be unsaved. You as a Jewish person may never have come to a full understanding of the Christ. You may have come to a mental understanding and yet have never gotten over the hump of making a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. We all understand God's responsibility in the salvation equation. Man has a responsibility. And some of these people had not fulfilled their responsibility. They were not believers, and yet they were in the church. Now, this can be a confusing thing. One of the interesting things about Hebrews is its difficulty. One of the reasons it's fun to study is because it's hard And one of the reasons it's hard is sometimes as you're going along, you don't know whether he's speaking to believers or unbelievers. Here's an easy way to handle that. Realize that he's writing to a church, right? So we assume they're believers. But also assume this. In every church, there are unbelievers, and the unbelievers in this church were beginning to cause problems. Or they were beginning to drift in such a way that was bringing reproach to Christ and causing a problem for their own soul. And so as you're reading the book of Hebrews, understand he's speaking to professing believers, some of whom are not believers at all. And because they're Jewish, he refers to them either as mature, which means born again, or immature, which means lost. And yet there is application for us. Those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll see that as we go through here, because his concern for these immature professing uh, professors of Christ is the same thing for us. And here's why. You may come to church week after week after week. You may have given in the offering this morning. You may take the Lord's Supper. You may be involved in ministry just like they were and not know Christ Has this not been his message from the very beginning? Hasn't some of these messages, haven't they been hard to hear? 
He's questioning their salvation again and again and again. He's questioning their salvation. Why? Because they were exercising unbelief. And people who exercise unbelief may very well be unbelievers. And so he's addressing this whole issue of immaturity. And it may be, prolonged immaturity may be the sign of an unbelieving heart. That's all he's saying here. That's his concern. Prolonged immaturity may be the sign of an unbelieving heart. The fact of the matter is some of the members of this church were so immature that the author had reason to question whether or not they belonged to Christ at all. So much of what this author wrote is so clearly intended to call his readers to salvation and repentance and faith that it often feels like he's writing to a group of unbelievers. But then he'll say something like this, chapter 6, verse 9. You've got to take all of this in context. He's calling them to faith, calling them to trust, calling them to believe. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking to you in this way. We are calling you to repentance. We are questioning your salvation. But, oh, we want to believe the best about you. We want to believe that you are truly children of God. But we bring these issues up because we don't want you to be lost. You see the tension? Every pastor knows this tension. If you want to try to get your hands around this passage of Scripture, just put yourself in a pastor's position. Always dealing with a group of people. There are some 200 people here this morning. Always dealing with a group of people. Some of them seem to be clearly born again. Others seem lost. And there are other people who are kind of in the middle. Sometimes they seem like they're born again and they're being faithful and they're living for Christ and full of the Spirit. And sometimes you wonder, oh my goodness, what's going on in their lives? Do they even know the Lord? And so how would you write a letter to a group of people like that? you would do what he's doing. You'd say, oh, brothers, and yet we question whether you are brothers. Oh, sisters in the Lord, and yet you're giving us cause to question whether you are sisters in the Lord. And it just goes back to what the apostles have said earlier, be all the more certain about his calling and choosing you. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And here's the test this morning. Where are you in terms of maturity? If he's speaking to Jews, he's saying, listen, you should have matured. You should have grown out of the old covenant into Christ. And you ought to be teachers now of the gospel. We ought to be able to call on you when somebody's sick in Sunday school and say, fill in today. We trust you. But you're nowhere near there. You are so immature that we question your faith. And so he's writing to believers and unbelievers, and I think the only viable option here is to understand that he's writing to a group of people who call themselves believers, who are members of a church and active in ministry, but whose lives are marked by such a degree of immaturity that he he has cause to question their salvation. Now, I don't know about you, beloved, but I can't think of a more relevant message for the Western postmodern church than this one. Churches in our day are filled to capacity with professing believers who are so immature in their faith that it's unclear whether or not they are even truly born again. And we all know people like this. 
In fact, though it's almost inconceivable, many churches in our day are built on a model of immaturity. They're building on a model of immaturity. The whole system is designed to attract the immature and to keep them immature. Ministries are designed to speak almost exclusively to felt needs and practical advice, but the excellencies of Christ are never expounded upon for their own sake. The deep, weighty truths of God's Word are never plumbed. Sin is rarely addressed. How many churches do you know that practice church discipline? And yet if we're not dealing with sin, then how can we preach the gospel? Sin is rarely addressed. Emotions and entertainment are exalted. And people never, never, never grow up. I tell you, beloved, the new self-styled churches are producing many self-professing Christians whose shallow immaturity makes you wonder if they're even saved. But to be fair, it's also possible for a person to remain spiritually immature even in a good church where the Word of God is faithfully preached, where sin is compassionately addressed, and where Christ is exalted to His proper place. And that would be the case in this church, the church this author is writing to. But regardless of why a person remains spiritually immature, the author of Hebrews is warning that prolonged immaturity may be a sign of an unbelieving heart. I get that terminology from chapter 3, verse 12. Look at that with me. Where the author writes, chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Notice he says, Take care, brethren. And yet an evil, unbelieving heart would be an unbeliever. You see the tension? May it never be demonstrated that any of you who claim Christ were actually unsaved. That's the thrust of his entire message. He's worried that some of... Some members of this church might be deceived into thinking they are children of God when they are not. And in chapter 5... He reveals that the evidence for such a concern is their prolonged immaturity. Their prolonged immaturity. And so we come to Hebrews 5. And let's read again to kind of set this up, 11 through 13. We'll save 14 for just a minute. But we need to let this sink in. Concerning him, verse 11, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles and oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. In verse 11, we see the first of two marks of the dangerously immature. Namely, that such people have lost their enthusiasm for growing in the knowledge and obedience to God's Word. They have lost their enthusiasm for growing in the knowledge and obedience of God's Word. If you're taking notes, this first section you might call the marks of the dangerously immature. The marks of the dangerously immature. And I submit to you there are at least two here. Now in the previous verses, the author was trying to explain that Jesus Christ offers a superior high priesthood 
than what was offered in the Old Covenant because Christ's high priesthood is modeled not after the priesthood of Aaron, but after the priesthood of another man whose name was what? Melchizedek, who served long before Aaron and who held the office not only of priest, but of king, which was not allowed in the priesthood of Aaron. But then, as he's trying to explain this, he kind of introduces the topic. And he's wanting to exposit this whole concept even more and lay it out for them. But it's as if he, in the middle of writing this, he gets to the point of, the main point of this argument on the subject, and he becomes frustrated at the realization that the people reading this letter are not even capable of understanding what he's about to talk about. He says, concerning him... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I want to explain to you the priesthood of Christ and how it is like Melchizedek and not Aaron. And there's some technicalities here that are really going to help you if you understand them. But my fear is you're not even anywhere near a place where you're going to be able to understand what I'm saying to you. I had this experience once. I was invited to come and teach a Bible study a number of years ago. I was the associate pastor here, and a brother, a good brother, invited me to his home. And uh, they weren't members of this church, and they wanted to have some people over and have me do a Bible study. And I said, well, okay, I will, I'd like to do the book of Galatians, because I had never studied Galatians or taught it. And uh, he was concerned because it was full of doctrine. And I thought, well, you know, that's what we're all about. We, we teach the Word of God. We, I mean, it's, it's God's Word. We want to hear it. And so I went and I, I began teaching, and I, I kind of started here, and I began teaching on it and building on it, and I could see in their eyes they weren't following me. And so I started asking questions and realized there was a, some doctrinal underpinning that wasn't there. So I took a step backwards. I said, okay, well, let me explain this, and then maybe we can get there. And I started explaining that, and then I realized there was something under that that wasn't there, and there was something under that that wasn't there, and there was something under that that wasn't there. But oh my goodness, we're going to have to start with elementary principles. And it was very frustrating, because these were godly folks, seemingly godly folks, and yet, when it came to an understanding of the Word of God, they were immature. They were immature. And I think on the part of these believers in the book of Hebrews, it was worse. It wasn't just their knowledge that was immature, it was their behavior as well. The phrase dull of hearing means numb ears. Their ears are numb. Ears that are slow to hear. The difficulty was not in the fact that the truths that the author was trying to expound were especially deep, but that the people's capacity to understand was unnaturally shallow considering how long they had been professing Christ. I mean, you would expect if a person came to know the Lord last month that he would have a pretty shallow view of the Word of God, a pretty shallow understanding of Christ, a pretty shallow understanding of the gospel. Well, maybe that all he knows is once I was blind and now I can see, and that's all he needs to know at that point. But you get 10 years down the road, and he ought to know more than that. He ought to have grown in his faith. And that's the author's concern. You've become dull. And notice, 
Now, this had not always been the case with his readers. The author says, you have become dull. It's as if the member, uh, as if he remembered the first time he visited their little synagogue before they came to Christ and presented the gospel from the scriptures. And when they heard it, it seemed to make sense and everything else that they had ever been taught from their childhood out of the Old Testament all kind of fit together. The Old Testament took on fresh and new meaning and they saw its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, their awaited Messiah. They were excited about the word. They couldn't get enough of the Bible. They longed for it like newborn babes. Newborn babes long for milk. But somewhere along the way, they lost their enthusiasm. Somewhere along the way, they grew cold. This is so practical, beloved. Over the years, I've counseled couples, many people like this. I listened to their life story and learned that many years ago, their conversion seemed so dramatic. Their conversion seemed so real. They felt such deep conviction over sin. They were moved to make a public confession. They were baptized. They became enamored by the word of God. And they read it like a starving man who had just found a warm loaf of bread. And it all seemed so fresh and new and electrifying. But as the years passed, the fire dimmed. And as the years passed, the fire went out. And maybe it didn't even take years. Perhaps they faced some hardship. Perhaps they became ill or lost a job or lost a marriage or a child. Whatever it was, it tempted them to cool off spiritually. They quit reading their Bible. Eventually, they stopped going to church. Eventually, they couldn't even remember some of the great truths they had once been captivated by. And now they are numbered among the dangerously immature the dangerously immature. It's reminiscent of the soil that Jesus spoke about where he said, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. There's our word, falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word of God, and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. He gives us four different kinds of soils, only one of which was the equivalent of a true child of God. Such people take grave offense when their Christianity is questioned, by the way. They want you to believe they're good Christians, but at the same time, they have no interest in growing up. They had a great start, but they lost their enthusiasm for knowing and obeying God's word. A very common thing is when someone comes for counsel, I find out immediately that they're not going to church, but they want you to believe that they're a good Christian. And my first thought is, this is basic. This is elemental. This is the very issue that the author of Hebrews was addressing. How is it that you can be that immature and still call yourself a believer? I question that. I question your faith. If the very basics of Christianity are not alive in your life, then why call yourself a Christian? 
They had a great start, but they lost their enthusiasm somewhere along the way for knowing and obeying God's word, and now they've left it behind. The second mark of the dangerously immature derives from the first. After their enthusiasm for knowing and obeying God's word cools off, there's nowhere to go but backwards. And by the way, you're either going forward or backwards. You can't maintain. You can't maintain your ground. The water is always moving. The water is always moving. You will either swim against it with all of your might and make progress, or you will drift with it, but you will go forward or you will go backward. You won't be able to stay the same for long. Look at verses 12 and 13. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles and the or- of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. The apostle says, you have professed Christ for so long, you ought to be teachers by now. But now you're the ones who need to be taught. Somebody needs to sit down with you and say, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, you ought to go to church. If you're going to be a Christian, you ought to be reading your Bible. And if you're not, then maybe you're not. And what do they need to learn? Verse 12 says they need to learn the elementary principles and oracles of God. In other words, they had regressed so much that they needed to go all the way back to Christianity 101. Elementary principles does not just mean basic doctrine. It literally means the rudiments of the rudiments. The rudiments of the rudiments. So we're not talking about basic words here. We're not talking about C, spot, run. We're talking about A, B, C. We're talking about what does this letter sound like? Sound out your A, sound out your B, 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 C, K, K, K. Let's start from the beginning. Because I'm concerned you have slacked off so much, you have drifted so far backward, I wonder if you ever had the real thing at all. You have abandoned the most basic principles of the Christian life. So what is it about your life that makes you a Christian? You've not murdered anyone. That's not enough. You don't take drugs. That's not enough. If the Holy Spirit is living in your heart, then you ought to have holy affections that produce holy fruit. And he's saying, I'm not seeing the fruit. I'm not seeing the fruit. And by the way, if you struggle with Hebrews chapter 6, I know a number of you are waiting for me to get to chapter 6. Okay, and I'm going to finish chapter 5 here in a few minutes. So we're going to jump into chapter 6 where many say, this is a difficult passage. It may be that the person is losing their salvation because that's what it sure sounds like. That's not what he's talking about. You've got to know these basic truths that I'm offering you today and have been all along. If the root is bad, the fruit is bad. If the root is good, the fruit is good. And that's why in chapter 6, he says this, verse 7, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, just put fruit, useful for those 
whose sacred has also been tilled, receives a blessing from God. You're blessed by God if you're fruitful. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. You see what he's saying? He's saying, it's time to inspect the fruit, people. It's time to stop saying, I believe. You know how James again and again says, a man may say he believes. If you say you have faith, who cares what you say? Nobody gives a rip. God doesn't give a rip what you say. He's a fruit inspector. He's a fruit inspector. And he knows a plastic apple from a real apple. He can distinguish from something that has grown on to, grown from within the tree to uh, the difference between that and something that has been hung on the tree like a Christmas ornament. They needed to go back to the ABCs. And perhaps it was the persecution. The persecution these Jews belie- Jewish believers were facing was pressuring them to turn back to Judaism. They were in danger of turning away from the substance back to the shadows. They were tempted to turn back to the old covenant with its types and symbols, its costumes, its pageantry, its sacrifices, its rituals, which all found their fulfillment in Christ, the very one that they professed to believe. And somehow they were beginning to forget forget the glorious truth of how Christ was the fulfillment of all those things. And I grant you, persecution would certainly muddy the water. I tell you, when you're anxious and you're afraid, nothing seems to make sense. It's hard to keep your bearings. I understand that. But to turn away from him... The Lord Jesus is tantamount to turning away from the gospel itself. But then again, they had regressed so far that they weren't even clear about the gospel anymore. They weren't even clear about the gospel anymore. They lost their taste for solid food and turned back to spiritual pablum, milk. And because they had regressed so far, they couldn't have explained the gospel of Jesus Christ if they were pressed You may be wondering, why in the world did I talk about the church like I did a few minutes ago? Because this is a major, 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 major issue in the Western church today. I don't even know what the gospel is anymore. We have become so immature for the sake of growing large churches. We have become so immature and so lax with regard to sin that we've got a skewed idea of what the gospel is now. I think that's what he meant when he speaks of the word of righteousness in verse 13. Verse 13 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He doesn't even understand the gospel. If you press him and say, explain to me, in 50 words or less, what is the gospel? You're going to get all kinds of things. You're going to get a hodgepodge and an admixture and milk toast kind of doctrine about how a person gets saved that doesn't resemble at all what the Word of God teaches. If you've read anything from the leaders of the emergent church, you know that they consider such doctrinal regression to be a sign of progress. Can you believe it? Progress. 
To them, you're mature if you see ambiguity and mystery in everything, especially the gospel. If you think I'm making that up, listen to this. Bill, Brian McLaren, one of the primary leaders of this movement, is fond of telling people that clarity is overrated when it comes to the Bible. And regarding the gospel, he writes these words, quote, So perhaps it's best to suspend what, if anything, you know, in quotes, know about what it means to call Jesus Savior and to give the matter of salvation some fresh attention. He then explains that the word save could mean any number of things, and we really can't be sure what. And if you think this must be some kind of bizarre fringe movement, you need to know that the emergent church movement is the most rapidly spreading church philosophy in the Western world. In fact, there are several emergent churches in Fort Worth, one of them less than a quarter of a mile from this building. It's here. It's here. But you don't have to be a victim of emergent philosophy to find yourself dangerously immature in the faith. All you have to do is let go. All you have to do is cool off. All you have to do is nothing. Just keep calling yourself a Christian and don't do anything about it. Just live according to the dictates of your stomach and your glands. Live for your passions and call yourself a Christian. And show up once in a while at church in order to blow smoke and get anybody off your trail that might suspect that you're not a believer. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul spoke with a broken heart about his Jewish brothers, men and women, who were caught up in the same kind of error. He wrote in Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, the gospel, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They did not obey the gospel as the Apostle Peter says. The author of Hebrews was afraid that his beloved people were headed right back into the same error. They lost their enthusiasm for the knowledge and obedience of the Word of God and become infantile in their thinking, and they didn't even know what the gospel was anymore. But the mature believer is not like this at all. In verse 11 through 13, we learn about the marks of the dangerously immature, but in verse 14, the author reveals the marks of, a, of the discerning mature. The discerning mature. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Solid food is for the mature. In other words, mature believers love the meat of the word of God. Mature Jews who are born again love the meat of the Word of God, even if they're young in the faith. They long to grow in their understanding of the Bible. When they hear an excellent exposition of the Word, it makes some text clear. They take notes. They ask questions. They want to know. They might even be found sitting in the car with the engine turned off just to listen to Scriptures preached, defended, and explained. They just want more. As Jesus said, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because that's the mark of a true believer. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to know the Word of God. They want to obey the Word of God. They want to be pleasing to the Lord. Second, they have a history of practical obedience. They not only love solid food, but they have a history of practical obedience. The apostle writes, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice, see that word? Because of practice. In other words, these people don't just hear the word, they meditate on the word, considering it for every implication they can think of, and then they put it into practice until it becomes a part of their character. And this is what spiritual growth is all about. This is what progressive sanctification is all about. This is what growing in Christ is all about. Their senses are trained to discern good and evil. After they've heard it and meditated on it and put it into practice, they find that eventually discerning good and evil, truth and error become second nature. Their senses are trained to discern good and evil. And a lot of times this happens when they hear something, they say, whoa, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. I can't explain why, but give me a few minutes. Or let me make a phone call. Or let me do a little digging. This happened with Pastor Jim and myself one day. A friend uh, recommended a young man, I think was from India, who... um, wanted us to support him as a missionary. I may have told you this story before. We took him to uh, a restaurant down the street here, and uh, we were real interested. We wanted to be involved in missions worldwide. We wanted to support a young national to do the work of the ministry, and we had a wonderful lunch with him. When we got to the end, he told us about this book he was writing. And uh, we said, well, great, tell us about your book. And he said, well, I've, 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 I've come to understand... Uh, what happened to Jesus on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet we know that God cannot be separated from God. And so here's what happened. Jesus, the man, and Jesus, the God, were together in one, and they were around on earth together in one body. And at the last minute on the cross, Jesus, the God, left, and Jesus, the man, said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I tell you what, we didn't know what that was about, but our dashboard was going, beep, 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 beep. (laughs) There's something wrong with that. But we had to come back to the office and dig. There is no new heresy. It's only old ones that get rehashed and rediscovered and re-promoted. And this was an old one. It's a version of modalism, and I don't want to get into all the technicalities here, but it was heresy. It was condemned explicitly by the church in centuries past. But those who are growing in maturity in their faith eventually get to a place where they hear something and their senses are just trained to know this is right and this is wrong. This is truth. This is error. This is the right direction. This is the wrong direction. It's not that they've attained some level of perfection. That's not it at all. You still make mistakes. You still have to learn. There are still things you don't know. But the basics, the essentials, the most important things in the Word of God are clear. And they then become the measuring rod for everything else you hear. 
We ought to be there. If you've been a professing Christian for any length of time, you need to ask yourself, have I made progress? Have I made any progress in this faith in the last year? Do I know more the Word of God? Am I more submissive to the Word of God? Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ more today than I did a year ago? If not, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And if you can trace that really far back, you've got prolonged immaturity, then you need to ask, my goodness, does the Holy Spirit indwell me or not? This is what mature believers look like. But there were a number of people in this little church who were nowhere near this level of maturity that they needed to be. They had professed faith in Christ for more than enough time to become so mature, but they had made so uh, little progress. And whatever progress they had made was not lasting. And so the author was gravely concerned. Listen, beloved, mark this down. Are you ready? Where there is life, there is growth. Where there is life, there is growth. You don't need to know much of the Bible to know that's true. I was watching the guys out here, uh, the guys who mow our lawn. I guess they missed a week or something. And uh, a couple of days ago, you know, remember last Sunday we came and the grass was real high. It was kind of hard to walk through the, the, the field there if you parked out there because the grass was coming up and it's kind of snagging on your pants. And, and uh, a couple of days later, I was coming out and they were here mowing. And oh my goodness, their lawnmowers were bogging down. It was getting, you know, deep. And I pulled up next to this guy and I said, um, he said, did you think we forgot you? And I said, no, I thought you were going to bring a combine out and harvest this stuff. He said, what have you been feeding this grass? Rain, man, just rain. Why? Because he'd forgotten the principle. Where there's life, there will be growth. And oh, did it grow. That's the true anywhere you go. You look at any life, there should be growth. If there's not growth, there is a problem. There's a problem. You can be alive and not growing, but you cannot be alive not growing without any problem. There's a problem. And we need to identify what it is. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, if you are not growing, there is a problem. And I fear that the problem is, you don't know the Lord. You don't belong to Christ. You started off well, but you're not finishing well. You're bailing out, and I fear that you may be falling away. You may be like that seed that Jesus talked about that sprung up very quickly, and everybody thought you were saved, and then it was gone. Where there is life, there is growth. The men and women that the author were speaking to and about claim to have life, but were evidencing no growth. And so his concern was well-founded. What about your life, beloved? Are you growing in the Lord? How long have you been a Christian anyway? Are you growing in his grace? Do you know more of his word than you did last year? Are you more enamored, even stunned by God's mercy in your life this year? than you were last year.
Are you more sensitive to sin this year than you were last year? Are you more apt to pray when a situation happens or just when you're riding down the road and you turn the radio off than you were last year? Are you more able and more apt and zealous to tell someone you know who's lost about the Lord Jesus than you were last year? I tell you, if you've answered no to all of those questions or a significant number of those questions, then this book, this message is for you. Beware. Beware. Because where there is no growth, there is no life. But you can deceive yourself into thinking, I'm alive, I'm breathing in and out, I know the Bible, I've memorized Scripture, I've been active in ministry. And someday the Lord says, there will be many like that. And I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. What about your life? Do you still have that enthusiasm for learning and obeying the Word of God? Are your senses trained to discern intuitively the difference between truth and error? If you have professed Christ for more than a few years and you don't see this kind of growth happening in your life, perhaps you need to begin asking some serious questions. Some serious questions. Because, beloved, where there is life, there is always growth. But prolonged immaturity may be the sign of an unbelieving heart. Oh, may it not be said of us in that last day that we came and heard the message preached again and again and again and again and again. And we were too proud to own that we did not believe. For then it will be too late. Father, we praise you.